commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have the have treasure in heaven and come follow me disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God and the disciples were amazed at his words but Jesus said to them again children how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. So the first will be made last and the last shall be made first is where our gospel passage concludes for us this morning. So the first shall be made last and the last shall be made first. This teaching in it, um, is a hard teaching. Um, uh, I think we, we, last week we did divorce, which was hard. Um, hard to talk about, but this one, you know, we get to this one, and it's like we've thought through this one enough that we um, barely know it at all, I think, sometimes. For instance, I, as probably many of you, I call this the story of the rich young ruler, which are details combined from all three Gospels, but not in in one of them. Um, and so he is not called young in Mark. Um, he is not called rich until the end in Mark. He doesn't even say rich. He has many possessions. He's not called a ruler in Mark either. And so we have this way in which we think we know this story and this passage. And, and even in context and conversations, people sway, well, you know the story of the rich young ruler, which is funny because now I think, like, if I say that, I don't know the story of the rich young ruler. I know a conglomeration of stories that make up the rich young ruler, but sometimes I think... That means we don't even know it at all. Um, and that's, uh, speaking for myself, um, 
you know, if Kelly had asked me early in the week, what are you preaching on? I would have said, the story of the rich young ruler. And then as I studied and sat slower with it, I would have gone, oh, oh. It's the story of the man with many possessions. But I think the thing we miss is these two critical teachings within this story that, that sort of set it in a different plane. One is with, with man, things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It's that confrontation with this one who makes all things possible that makes what the rich young ruler doesn't see and what the disciples are capable of seeing, if but dimly, that things are possible with God that are not possible within ourselves. The second is that final teaching, that, that there's this way in which the first will be last and the last shall be first. There's this tension there in, in where are we achieving in life. And, and what we follow is this God who, who becomes last in his human life in these ways. You can read that famous Christ hymn from the book of Philippians, um, that, that he took on the form of a slave, um, and that he descends to the lowest, and that's why he has the name above all names. Our pattern is one who goes down, knowing that's the path to being raised up, most notably in his death. So we have these two teachings that we um, moralize this story, but it's a theological and Christocentric story in ways in which we sort of miss. Well, I haven't sold everything I have and given it to the poor. With man, things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The Genesis reading, I want to say, because if I forget to say it, people are going to say, why did Matt have that such a weird selection from the book of Genesis read before we <laughs> talked about it? It was this, within that saying, uh, within that story, um, and within much of the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament, is there's this notion that I'm talking about here in that impossible thing. Uh, God asks Abraham that, does she not know that with God this is possible? That the barren can become fruitful again? that the dead can become alive, that things can be changed. And, and we, too, are like Sarah. We laugh at the possibilities that God might be able to do this. Perhaps we're like Sarah and we try to save face and say, I didn't laugh. And God says, but you did. <laughs> That's, I, never, I, I try to always sympathize with the biblical characters, but lying to God is one I'm like, I don't know. Um, I don't know how I think I'd get away with that. I mean, it must be in a moment thing, because I can't imagine they thought they'd get away with it either. Anyways, before we go too far into the sermon, I want to tell a story that I think relates to some of this, because this story is a Lent story. We're, we're moving through these teachings in between the Transfiguration and Palm Sunday in the Gospel of Mark. And so um, we walk through uh, Jesus' final exorcism. The power is asserting itself again in, in um, damaging ways. Um, and then we walk through one teaching— um, uh, well, he, he heals a blind man uh, and how we see as trees. And then we walk through one teaching that sort of seems like a mini um, cate catechesis for the disciples, a discipleship thing for the disciples and those deciding to become disciples to learn and to memorize about how we are to live in this life, um, how we are to be in this world, uh, causing to stumble and such. And then there's this little, and, and what I proposed last week is in the ancient world there are these household codes that make up, um, you see them everywhere. Romans have them, um, uh, the Greeks had them, uh, the New Testament has them, Paul has them in his letters, and Paul shifts them. They're not similar everywhere they appear. They are different, but they generally take the idea of that there is um, a parent, there are children, 
there is wealth and then there are slaves. Um, there's these sort of teachings and then how are you supposed to treat them? Now, if you read through Paul's um, in Ephesians, um, you'll find that his is radically sort of equalizing and flipping compared to many of the ones in the ancient world. Um, and so that would be, um, you'd compare them like that. Jesus seems to be doing that same pattern here. We talked about marriage and divorce. We talked about children and that becoming like one of these children is how we receive and enter into the kingdom. This week we talk about wealth. And then that last teaching, um, uh, the last teaching before the blind Bartimaeus is about um, who will be the servant, who will be the slave of others, that Jesus is sort of ordering his household in these teachings. Um, And so we're walking through these and sort of seeing the ways in which this is structured in this way. But the story I wanted to tell uh, as, as this is a Lent story and this is, is, is what is between us and God is sort of the question. What Jesus says to the man is one thing you lack. John Wesley had this way of, of sort of asking people, um, I'm sure it was before him too, but how is it with your soul today? To think, how is it with our souls during this Sunday and this time? What is it that we lack? And it's interesting because this man has great possessions, seems to lack nothing. And so how is it we answer the question of what is it we lack? What is it that is in our souls that creates this barrier to God? It's an, it's an odd story. It stuck with me. I read it um, probably in 2005. It was in Slate or Salon, one of those sort of um, uh, left-wing magazines. But I always loved it when they covered religion because they would send somebody who knew nothing to go and talk to religious believers. And they would often, as, as these places do, pick the strangest groups of believers. It's not like they're, we're not super normal at Defiance Church per se, but like, it's not like they pick the church on the corner to go to and be like, what do these people believe? They, they pick the most radical ones they could find, and then they go, oh, this is what Christians are like, which is like, kind of. Um, but this story was about, of course, as I say, this, these, they pick weird examples of young Christian missionaries in, uh, and I can never say this, it's that island, I think off the coast of Spain, Ibiza. Ibiza? Yes. Jeremy, I knew you'd know that one. Um, uh, Ibiza. Uh, and, and they were trying to reach other young people for Christ off in this, what Ibiza is essentially spring break island. It's South Padre Island. It's party island pretty much year-round because it's in a more temperate climate than the United States is, I think, too. It's, it's, it, and, and raves and all these things were popular. And so these young Christians with a missions organization had taken upon themselves to try and reach um, the heavily intoxicated and induced of Ibiza, um, which, you know, I went to Lake Tahoe for a summer with Campus Crusade for Christ to suffer for the gospel. So I'm not judging um, <laughs> that they went, chose Ibiza, of all places, to reach people for Jesus. But th- they were talking to one of the young girls, um, and she was talking about her conversion and how she had worked her way of sort of doing this thing that was sort of out there in this way. And she was telling the person, you know, at my home church, at the life that I had, I, because to fit in at Ibiza, but also I think just her own personality, she had multiple piercings on her face and sort of was this sort of dressed eccentrically and had this eccentric look. And that was who she was. And she was like, and I struggled at my home church and in that place, in that context, trying to find my identity. Who was it I am? 
And these things that I had on me and the ways that I dressed and looked um, created obstacles in my church community that people would always confront me and this, that, and the other, and, and they would prefer that I didn't look that way. And so one day I was sitting there and I was praying in, 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 at night and um, God, I heard God telling me to take out all my piercings. And so I began to take them out and I placed them in my hands and I took another one out. And I, I, there's no picture of her in the article as far as I remember, but I think she has a lot of piercings. Um, and she begins to take them out and as she holds them in her hand, God speaks to her and, and her sort of unconscious comes to this place of sort of like this six ounces of metal is dictating my spiritual life. This pile of things that I've wrapped my identity and who I up, am up in is what's dragging me down and keeping me from restoration and keeping me from the wholeness that God has for me. And what I, The reason that story stuck out with me is because the journalist was completely dumbfounded by the whole enterprise, of course. But I think I've used it a lot in conversations with people because as a pastor, people come up to me and say, I'd love to go to church, but this, or I'd love to relate to this organization, but that, or, you know, my family and this. And oftentimes it's as simple as saying, are you letting six ounces of metal keeping you from reconciliation with someone, keeping you from goodness and walking the path of God? keeping you from moving into the next phase that God has for you. How is it with your soul? And so for this woman, it's not selling all her riches that needed to happen for her. One thing she lacked was a proper sense of what does it mean to be in the people of God. Six ounces of metal shouldn't keep us from that. What's fascinating, this relates to the, the end of the story in Mark, is that the journalist is like, and yet you have all your piercings in. And anybody who's a Christian knows how that works. Being freed from it, God restored it to her. She said she no longer walks around with that chip on her shoulders. She takes them out in places where it's appropriate to take them out. She's no longer governed by these things. And so it is restored to her. You see this in the teaching at the end, that, that we've left these things behind. And Jesus says, in an amazing way, it's restored to you in this life and in the age to come. So often it's how we hold these things that blinds us to where we want to go and where we want to be. And so that um, is a way of starting the sermon to say that, that as we think through this, Luther, the church has like, Hard part about studying this text is like generally all you get is a history of what we've said about this text, which is great, super helpful. It's not. Um, none of them referenced Ibiza, which was totally, that ruined it for me. Um, the, uh, the, the problem is, is that the church has read this text in many different ways. One is there's this call that Jesus is speaking to everyone. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the nature of what Jesus does with others in the gospel. Most notably, Zacchaeus, he gives half of what he's taken away. That Jesus seems to have a particular call to each individual. So in, um, as the church develops, let's say, in the early periods, but certainly through Catholicism, there's this way of reading it as a two-tiered ethic. There are some 
who are commanded to sell all they have and to follow Jesus robustly in this way. And there are others who are called to, um, to hold on to that. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to this in some ways because I think the nature of the charisms that make up the church and the gospel, the community of believers, needs different forms. So the idea of, um, in Matthew's gospel, that we are to give to the poor, almsgiving. If you sell all you have and give it to the poor, you can no longer practice almsgiving. Um, For missionaries to be funded, as Paul is in his missionary journeys, he needs people who are stationary funding him. Um, There's this way in which you can trace the Gospels and look at how each person reacts to Jesus. Some people receive healing and blessing. Other people receive challenges and such. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Luther's genius, when he comes around, is to read this as a particular word to this particular man which then raises the problem of, great, now we can just relativize it to each of our own struggles, and nobody's ever called to give all they have and sell it to the poor. So point being is that's what my week was like, is just learning over and again how church history has tried to sort of bind up this teaching in this ways. But like I said, they miss so often that it's in the possibility of God that this story takes place. It's impossible for man possible with God. And second, that, that there's this way in which that in the end of things that the last shall be first and the first shall be made last. Um, as we think about the rich young man, uh, there's two passages in Mark's gospel that I think relate to the story that I just wanted to share briefly as we go, as we're trying to get a sense of what Mark says. Just in the previous teaching, I says, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter into it. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive, and and receive being the key word, how we receive the kingdom, like a little child, will never enter into it. Um, This sets up the next scene, which is poetic in its application of that story. As Jesus started on his way, as Jesus is starting on this way of the cross, and and Mark, the way that Jesus is going is, is the way in which the Christians are called to walk and to practice. So as Jesus starts on his way again to Jerusalem, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Unless you receive it like a child, you will never enter into the kingdom. What must I do? Which is the first sort of perhaps error that this man makes. What must I do? How is he receiving the kingdom? What must I do? Then, I, I have three kids now. Um, I used to not be able to say this, but, but th- there's this question of what must I do to inherit? Um, children don't talk about inheritances very often. When they get older, they do, but then they're adults. We still call them kids, but that's... Uh, Rosie's never asked me, Dad, what will my inheritance be? It'll be a sad day when she does. I'll be like, well... Treasures in heaven, girl. Um, anyways, uh, that was a, too much information. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man comes already to this point, missing the previous teaching, which was among the disciples, in sort of a category error. And how often is it we too come together and say, what must I do to move into this space? to have eternal life. 
It's, it's interesting that Jesus, at the t- when he promises the man what he's going to receive such treasures in heaven, it's like he needs them where he is in the game, too. He doesn't continue with the eternal life theme, but says if you get rid of these treasures, you'll have treasures in heaven. That, that the materialism of the man, Jesus doesn't entirely throw off. And this is perhaps a common question at this time, too. How will I be one who's received into that next land? should be notable that Mark, in Mark's gospel, much of the New Testament, this man is not asking about heaven. He's talking about how will I be among the faithful, resurrected on that day to have my inheritance in the promised land to come. Um, and so if, you, if by heaven you mean that, then yes, he's talking about heaven. But that's not what most of us mean when we talk about heaven. Um, he's talking about the next reality of life this new age that God is going to come in the fulfillment of time where the righteous will have space in the land and be fulfilled. So what must I do to do that? He also comes piously. He falls on his knees before God. The next thing has confounded the church. Again, lots of history in this passage for many years. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. For many uh, throughout Lots, most of church history, people have struggled with this, but Jesus is God. And so Jesus is saying no one is good but God alone. Several different interpretations, there's like a hundred different interpretations, but first off to say that there's a chance that the man is saying good teacher and Jesus is supposed to respond good student. So the greeting is to say, I call you good, you call me good. And Jesus is changing the point to say, on this ledger, humanity stands in not the good category with God. Um, Jesus, in Mark, doesn't call anybody good. In the other Gospels, he does, but in Mark, he doesn't. So uh, any human good. So he's, he's not looking, uh, he's not going to respond to this guy, well, good man, great question, because that would be to confuse what he's asking. Um, Origen, in the second century, talks about how that Jesus' goodness flows from the Father and through the Spirit. That there is a there is a um, original spot which the goodness comes from that is not in humanity. It flows through some other spot. Um, the second that most of us, I think, when we read this, um, he seems to be saying, reminding the man that no one is good but God alone. There's, there's another interpretation which I think is interesting in that Jesus um, names the last or the second table of the commandments as we go through this and none on the first table. But perhaps what he's doing is naming something in the Shema that, that, um, that he's is shorthanding that God is good and sort of that this is one of the commandments as well. You'll notice that, um, you know, no idols, um, uh, not taking the Lord's name in vain. Introduce that the list as he goes through the Ten Commandments changed in order and in context a little bit. Uh, you shall not covenant becomes you shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father moves to the end. Um, but Jesus quotes from the second table as he goes to the man. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give tests, false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. That Jesus uh, then quotes from the second table. Now, what's interesting about the second tablet of the commandments is it's externally able to be judged. Have no other gods before me. Mine is setting up an idol like in front of your house and worshiping it. It's much harder to judge that one. But Jesus moves to these categories to which you could say, check, I haven't done those things. Um, I either have committed adultery or I haven't committed adultery. It's 
unlikely this man has read the Gospel of Matthew at this time, where he says anybody who looks at Leslie in his heart commits adultery with her. So let's give him some benefit of the doubt on that one. But to say that Jesus quotes from this external sort of commands, he starts with this no one alone except God is good, perhaps revealing something about the man, but then he goes to the second half of these commandments. Um, you shall not defraud and honor your mother and father. Get two different sort of spins on interpretation. You shall not defraud instead of you shall not coven. Because the man has many possessions, there's a chance that he is then engaged in fraud in the ancient world. That's sort of the way it works. And honor your mother and father. Um, Jesus, as we go through this passage, is clearly placing him and God as father to these children who are his disciples. So the final one is honor the one whom you're speaking to seems to be the point. Teacher, he declared, I have kept all these since I was a boy. Um, in, I think, one of the other Gospels, there's reason to maybe doubt that this man's kept all these since he's been a boy, and perhaps we, knowing our own souls, say, unlikely, my friend. Um, but that's not Jesus' response to him. There's nothing in Jesus that says, well, aren't you deceiving yourself? Um, and again, without that interior interpretation that does come to us through the Gospels in an only exterior way, it does come in this way that seems to suggest this man has kept all these since he was a boy. So he is a pious man at this point. Jesus looked at him and loved him, which is one of the only instances where Jesus loves an individual in all of the Gospels. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looks into his soul and loves him. Now, this love in the Greek is, could mean that he um, stands shoulder to shoulder with him and sort of gives him a pat on the back. But either way, it's, it's the only time where this teaching sort of com or this idea comes up that with an individual as he looks at this man and loves him. This demanding comfort or comforting demand that we receive from the gospel, we always have to remember, comes with love. As a woman took out her jewelry and laid it in her hands, there wasn't one who wasn't standing there loving her in that moment. As we hear what it might mean for our own selves to say there is one thing we lack, it's important to remember is that there is one who stands there and loves us. He says, go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. His simple instructions, go, sell, give, come, and follow me. Um, he instructs the man to, to go and sell all that he has, to give it to the poor, which might mean the people of his estate. Um, he is to come and to follow him. This is where the story takes a twist because it moves to a call story. There are people um, earlier in this gospel who asked to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, it's for you to remain here. This man asked to inherit eternal life, and Jesus um, gives him the commandments, gives him what a righteous Jew will do. The man saying, oh, but I've done all that, he gets this challenge to then come and follow Jesus. Now, there is, in the call stories of the gospel, there's nobody who says no, except for this man. There's nobody who walks away and doesn't do it. There's this question about these things in which we have that are attainments, uh, adornments on our soul that hold us, this, that keep us in this position of lack. 
um, keep us in this position of, of um, without, um, they, um, they're harder to let go of. We don't see them in the same way. Um, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. There's, there's the question with those things, which is, do we own them, or do they own us? For the woman with the piercing, for this man with his wealth, through, I think, our own sinfulness. I think sin functions in this way. There's nothing sinful, particularly about this man being rich, at least as we know in the story. And the Old Testament has a two-tiered relationship to wealth, so, so there's nothing inherently sinful in it. But even with sin ourselves, there's this notion in which we deceive ourselves often into thinking these things are just out there. They don't reside in here, in my soul and in myself. But confronted with this teaching, the man has to come to the realization that as much as he may think his stuff is utilized entirely outside himself, it hangs heavy on him. He doesn't own it. It owns him. We talk about people leaving addiction behind. There's this notion in which there's great loss. Um, you think about um, an alcoholic, um, the idea that, that I, at the end of my workday, I can come home, I can open a beer, it gives me something to do, I relax. I have a community of people that, while they are not entirely for me, I can go and drink with them, um, uh, perhaps to excess or whatever. Um, it gives me a way to meet people and make friends, blah, blah, blah. All these identity things can be wrapped up in it, and you just think it's, it's just this um, light pattern thing. But in this addiction way, it's, it's that that thing owns you. You don't own it. This is why I think the first step of AA is that to admit we're powerless to these things. In our powerlessness, there is that which is impossible is possible with God. Go sell, give all you have to the poor, uh, come and follow me. Then there's that treasure in heaven which I mentioned. This man still receives treasure that's Jesus's point. It's just treasure in a different plane, different existence. At this, the man's face fell. He went away because he had great wealth. This is the only time we find out he's rich here at the end, by the way. We start the story because we all know it, and that's the rich man. Um, but it's not until after this revelation of what Jesus speaks to him that it's acknowledged what his problem with wealth is. This, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. At this, our faces often fall and we go away sad because we had so much hope and so much identity wrapped into those things. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Um, still, uh, this is the other teaching from Mark I referred to, still like other seeds sown among the thorns hear the word, but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of other things come and choke, it, it ch choke and making it unfruitful. This is um, about the seeds in the earlier parables. This man is an example of that seed. He receives it. He thinks this sounds good, but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of other things come and choke out the word. It's unable to bear fruit in these contexts. 
The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. See, in that first one, he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Here he acknowledges how hard it is for all to enter the kingdom of God. It is much easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This one receives all sorts of bizarre interpretations that aren't real. So the one about the camel, the camel eye of the needle, being a gate in Jerusalem where you had to stoop through to go into the city. And so it's meaning that you have to have reference towards your wealth and this, that, and the other. Starts in the 900 AD, so a long time from now. And then there's no evidence to that gate. Um, I was looking it up just to see if there was any like good images of this, and this is all I got. Um, you want me to do what? Um, there was lots of camels getting stabbed in the eye with the needle, which I, I thought was a bizarre interpretation I had never thought of. Um, but this seemed less gory than the rest. Um, but what Jesus holds out here is that this thing is an impossible thing. Now, camels also, incidentally enough, are one of the, it's the largest animal in the ancient Near East, although they knew about elephants. Um, but they're the animal that you would carry your stuff around in. That instrument in which you carry your possessions, unless it can pass through the eye of a needle. You carry your self-worth, you carry your identity that is not from God. Unless you can fit that through the eye of a needle, you cannot inherit the kingdom. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Just the important question that we should all be asking. Now, this man was rich, like I said, which means in a large portion of the Old Testament that God has seen him and blessed him. There are other teachings in the Old Testament that don't actually hold that hold that entirely out with wealth, but it's an entirely possible, and we sort of live this way, um, I forget who it was, it was a famous American preacher who said that, you know, rich and good are often synonymous, uh, synonymous, did I get it right that time? Synonymous in, in America, rich and good, like that the rich man can't go into the kingdom. How can anyone make it into the kingdom? How hard it is for doing that. Jesus looked at him and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. But not with God, all things are possible with God. This story, this teaching cruxes on that all things are possible with God. That God is the one who makes our salvation possible. You can read this story, and as, as I said, it's the parable of the rich young man, which again is not in any of the Gospels. It becomes about what can I do? Well, have you sold all that you have? You take Jesus literally. Have you taken and sold all that you have and given it to the poor? Even in the context of that teaching, Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible with God. Our salvation our inheriting of the kingdom, our moving into that new future with God is something that hinges only upon what God does. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Rely on that God, the one standing before you in Jesus Christ, is the one who opens the doorways to that. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left 
home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me, and the gospel will fail to achieve a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It, it's Peter, or Jesus does not correct Peter here, which I think is an interesting thing. Um, as he doesn't correct the man who says, I kept all the commandments, Jesus does not say to Peter, well, you didn't try that hard, um, or something like that. He seems to say, you're right, Peter, and as you've left home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or fields, for me in the gospel, um, you will receive a hundred times as much of that in the present age, home, brothers, sisters, mother, fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. He says, what he's saying is, what you've left will be restored to you in this age. And I think what, what Jesus is referring to there is that in the church, we gain these things back. And the reason why I think the church in North America often doesn't feel like that is that little thing in the middle there, along with persecutions. The church is supposed to be the place where we receive homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields again. That that, as we lost, as we left our original household. In the New Testament, in the ancient world, to convert religions is to say that, you know, I'm fine being on my own. You have to go out again. That for Mark's community in the church, you'll gain those things back in your new relationships with the people of God. But I think in a church that does its best to avoid persecutions and in a culture that, that is too nice to perhaps persecute so far, those things don't become apparent as much as they can be. I think it's for us to ponder that. Um, I think there's a chance that, that there is a tide of rising persecution um, if but we stay faithful. Um, but, but that's, you know, minus the conflict, the need to be in other people's homes to have them as brothers and sisters and mothers and children in fields, doesn't stand in the same way. Second thing is noticeably absent from the second list is father. So you leave your father in the first one. Father's not referenced in the second one. It seems to be because you don't have new fathers in the second one, but that God becomes your father in that next one. You don't receive a hundred fathers. You receive the one father that is God. Um, uh, Jesus has this way of lowering, lowering human fatherhood in a way that I think is dignifying, um, but also interesting if you think the gospel is only about men having power. Like mothers get a hundred, you know, they're important in the new age. Fathers, yeah, become a brother. Um, uh, but many who are fat first will become last. Um, to end the sermon, uh, as we think about that for ourselves, that there's a way in which this teaching heals and, and kills um, there's a way in which this teaches wounds and then applies balm to our souls. And this is a classic sort of Lutheran distinction, is that there is law and there is gospel. Um, and that law is that which cuts us and gospel is that which heals us. And Luther says that in every text there is law and gospel. But to be the person who can do that, you need to be a skilled with the scalpel. It's not an easy thing to do. But Jesus in this text confronts and in some sense kills, but he also heals. This is uh, Karl Barth in a long passage on this. He says, The unmasking of human disobedience in the story of the rich man. By refusing the call, human disobedience, 
The sorrow with which he went away show that in virtue of the totality in which it confronts man in the person of Jesus, the command of God kills. But the continuation of the story in which Jesus confronts his disciples as the commander of those who are obedient to his commands that shows in the virtue of the same totality, even as it kills, it does not cease to make alive. The gospel for us, as we hear it, is one which we hear, go, sell, give, follow me. But it's also this one that makes alive again. As Jesus speaks to his disciples. Next week we'll talk about how this gets influxed again. Let us pray. God, you have called us as your people to those who see what we lack. We obey the commands in which we have heard. But when we meet with you, when we meet with you in prayer and confession and examining our own souls, you speak to us. There's one thing you lack. May we hear that word and not say within our own possibility, within our own power, is it possible for us to cast that off, to move into a new frame, to say that we are stronger than the rich young man. But may we be people when we hear those words from you or those who know that for us this is impossible. But for you, all things are possible. The God who makes the barren alive and brings the dead back to life. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.